How much money should I give to the Lord? How much should I commit to the D&D challenge? I suppose there are as many opinions as people when it comes to answering those questions. One day, two friends were talking about matters of financial stewardship. The one guy said, when it comes to how much I ought to give to the Lord, this is what I do. On payday, I cash my check into small bills. I go home and I tape a circle on the floor of the living room. I throw all my money up into the air. Whatever falls in that circle belongs to God. Whatever falls outside the circle belongs to me. His buddy said to him, that's a great plan, but this is what I do. On payday, I too also cash my check into small bills. I go home and I throw all the money up into the air. Whatever God catches, he can keep. Whatever falls to the ground belongs to me. How do you decide how much you ought to give? Let me say from the very outset, I do not want generosity from you. I want generosity for you. I am not trying to get something out of you. I'm trying to get something into you. With that in mind, let us turn our attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. As today we talk about generous giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I'll begin at verse 1. Once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Second Corinthians chapter 8, let me begin at verse 1. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. For out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up into rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Here's my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable, according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. 
then there will be equality. For as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much. He who gathered little did not have too little. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God, you may be seated. In this passage, Paul gives four marks of generosity. The first one is this. The generosity is not dependent on personal circumstances. Generosity is not dependent on personal circumstances. At this time in church history, the Apostle Paul was collecting a love offering for struggling saints living in Jerusalem. He had gone to the Corinthian church. He had asked them to make a pledge, to make a commitment, to help those who were suffering in Jerusalem. And the Corinthians were eager to sign up. They were eager to say, we're all in. We're going to help them because of the message that came from the church of Jerusalem and has impacted our lives. So we are forever connected with all of our brothers and sisters all across the globe. So the Corinthian church said, we are in. Corinth was a lucrative city. It was a large city that had uh, a great population. The population held numerous types of people. There were craftsmen and merchants. There were teachers and philosophers. There were soldiers and sailors all pressed in in Corinth. Corinth had um, two harbors located on the Mediterranean Sea. That tells us that it was the hub of commerce and trade in the first century. There was much coming in. There was much going out. There were all types of people living in Corinth. It was an economic boom. It was a lucrative place to live. It was also a very religious place. You look at the skyline of the city of Corinth, and it was sprinkled with all types of temples to various gods and goddesses. In fact, in Corinth alone, there were 12 temples to the pagan goddess Aphrodite, who was believed to be the goddess of fertility. This city was rich. This city was diverse. This city was religious in every pagan sense of the word. And planted in the heart of Corinth was a church. It was a church that Paul says is excellent. It excels in many things, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, in love. It excelled in many things. It was a good church. It was a great church. It excelled in numerous aspects. But for some reason, the church at Corinth had pulled back in their generosity. I wonder what would cause people to pull back in their generosity towards God. There's more than one archaeologist who believes that in this time of the first century, Corinth was experiencing a severe famine. It was a famine that crippled the economy. And maybe there were people in the Corinthian church that had lost their jobs because of the famine. Maybe unemployment skyrocketed. Maybe the economy plummeted. Maybe there was such a downturned economy that people went into survival mode. You've ever been there? Because of fear of the future, you shrink back and you draw in the wagons and you circle up and you stop doing some things that you once did, maybe even in your generosity towards the Lord and His ministry. Maybe 
There were people that were living in shambles and dire straits because of the circumstances in which they found themselves. And because of that, they had pulled back in survival mode and they were not giving unto the Lord. And the Apostle Paul tries to motivate them towards generosity. He says, listen, I understand that your means are different. Your income is different, but... Your generosity is not dependent on personal circumstances. Their economy could be a lot like our economy. You and I don't look to the stock market, Dow Jones, or the futures to determine whether or not we're going to be generous unto the Lord. We give because God has given unto us. One of the ways that Paul wants to motivate the Corinthian Christians He says, I want you to take a look at the churches in Macedonia. Now, the Macedonian churches would have been uh, the church at Philippi, the one at Berea, the one at Thessalonica, even the Galatian churches. These would be churches that would have been to the north of Corinth. So in other words, the Apostle Paul says, look at those Yankee Christians. Look at those Christians living in the north region and look how generous they are. He's doing this to motivate the southern church at First Baptist of Corinth. Listen to what he says in verses 1 and 2. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches out of the most severe trial, their overwhelming joy, their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. They had an extreme trial. I don't know what that was. Maybe the famine had reached its way up into the northern region as well. I do know this, that the the typical economy in the north was not nearly as good as in the south. The south was the hub of commerce and trade there at the Mediterranean coast. Things typically were much better in the south. And Paul says, listen, uh, their dire straits, that's not an exception, that's a norm. That's normally how they live, and yet in spite of their poverty... They had tremendous joy. And because of that, it welled up into generosity. What is he doing? He's trying to motivate them under generosity because he's telling them, listen, your generosity is not dependent on personal circumstances. You know what I've observed? When money is your God, you tend to give only when there's a surplus. When money is your God, You tend to give only when there's a surplus. When the Lord is your God, you say unto Him, all that I have is yours. In times of plenty and in times of want, all of it is yours. And so Lord, uh, when there's not as much cash flow coming in, the amount going out is going to be different, but it's not going to stop because as you have given unto me, I will give unto you because my generosity, your generosity is not dependent on personal circumstances. It's not a situation where you give only when there's a surplus left over, give a tip unto the Lord, but you give regardless off the top, regardless of the amount that's in the barrel. Because generosity is not marked by personal circumstances. Second, generosity is marked by joy. Generosity and joy go hand in hand. I realize that for some, that sounds rather counterintuitive. You mean, 
To give is to be equivalent to being joyful, and being joyful includes our generosity. And the apostle says, yes, listen to how the Macedonian churches gave in verses 3 and 4. I testify that they, that's the Macedonian churches, they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saint. I've been a pastor for 15 years. I can't remember anyone who's ever come up to me and earnestly pleaded to give an offering. Please, 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 pastor, let me give. I don't think that's ever happened. Yet Paul says the Macedonian churches came up to him and said, Pastor, please, 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 please let us give to your love offering to the saints in Jerusalem. And Paul is using this as a motivation to the Corinthian Christians. He's saying, listen, your generosity ought to be marked by joy. I've oftentimes wanted to do this. I've oftentimes wanted to say, okay, before we take up an offering, I want you to take out your wallet, your checkbook, your e-give, whatever you have, um, and I want you to give it to the person seated behind you. And then we're going to take up the offering. How much fun would that be? You could give somebody else's money. Oh boy, you could give everything that you've always wanted to give because it's not your money, it's somebody else's money. How awesome would that be? That would probably be the largest offering we take up an entire year. Because we'd say, now we're getting joyful. Now we're getting happy, right? Because we're giving somebody else. And Paul says, listen, your generosity ought to be marked by joy. This is hard. I think this is probably one of the reasons why Jesus spent so much time talking about stewardship and generosity and money, position, and possessions. It's been estimated that Jesus spent nearly 25% of his stories and teaching on stewardship. One out of every four. You think about just some of his experiences and you realize this is true to form. One day Jesus commended the offering of a poor widow. One day Jesus had a conversation with a rich, a rich young ruler and when he began to meddle about money, the rich young ruler walked away sad because he had great wealth. You think about just those two stories and it shows us the joy of generosity or the lack thereof. One day Jesus and the disciples had positioned themselves in the area of the temple where there were about a dozen or so trumpet-shaped brass receptacles. Jesus just sat back and watched as people came by and gave their offering. Probably because people recognized Jesus as the holy rabbi from Galilee, they probably gave their offering with more vim and vigor, right? They wanted to impress the master. And so people would come and their money it was heavy coins and because it was a upside-down trumpet-shaped brass receptacle, they could really learn how to fling the money so it was a clink, clink, clunk as it made its way to the bottom. If you got really good at it, you can make a lot of noise as you tossed it and turned it. Some of you know how to skip rocks. These guys knew how to skip coins. It really made a, large, a lot of noise, great deal of volume, and people would listen and go, wow, did you hear? So-and-so must have given a whole lot of money. And then Jesus took note, not of those gifts, but of the gift of a poor widow. All she had were a couple of lightweight, featherweight, copper coins. She gave them unto the Lord. 
He had to strain to hear it fall into the brass-shaped receptacle. It wasn't a cling, clang, clunk. It was just a barely little bit of noise and plop. Jesus says to his disciples, did y'all see that? They said, did we see what? Did you see that? I tell you what, she gave more than all those fat cats. Jesus, how's that possible? I don't know about you, but there are times when I wonder what kind of grades Jesus made in elementary arithmetic. Because sometimes this mathematics just doesn't add up. How in the world is that bigger than what the other people gave? I mean, dollar for dollar, certainly it's not. And Jesus says she gave out of her poverty. She gave out of desperation. She gave out of her joy. She gave it all to the Lord because she realized all she had was from the Lord. And then you fast forward and Jesus has a conversation with a rich young ruler. Hey, what must I do in order to be saved? And Jesus enters to a conversation with this guy and he thinks he's doing pretty well. He's kept many of the commandments. And then Jesus hones in and he says, but you've made your goods into your God. So this is what you need to do. You need to sell your possessions, give money to the poor, and then come and follow me. And the man walked away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus struck at the heart of the matter. He realized that this man was gripped by his own greed. He was possessed by his own possessions. You know what I've observed? You don't have to have a lot of things for those things to have you. This man walked away. Did he realize who he was talking to? Did he understand he was speaking to the crown jewel of heaven? Did he know that Jesus was the one who could give him eternal life and abundant life? Did he realize who he was talking to? And yet instead of making him his Messiah, he would rather follow his own money. So he walked away said, I don't know if he ever turned back around. I don't know, but in that moment, he had the invitation clearly extended unto him, and he walked away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus turned to the disciples and said, I tell you what, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, or it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. See, for the Macedonian churches in 2 Corinthians, they knew that their generosity was not cold-hearted calculation. It was warm jubilation. They gave not out of obligation, but adoration. It wasn't because of high pressure. It was holy privilege that they gave unto the Lord because they understood that generosity is marked by joy. Third, the third mark of generosity is this, that generosity is rooted in the cross of Christ. Your giving is inextricably tied to Calvary. And when you and I begin to understand this, we put our generosity in proper perspective. Listen to what the apostle writes when he says in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Your generosity is rooted in the cross of Christ. Jesus is our model in all things pertaining to faith and practice including our generosity. For Jesus is the crown jewel of heaven. He is rich in person, in position, in possessions. 
in power. He is rich in person. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is co-eternal with God. He is co-equal with God. He is not another God, a lesser God, or a creation of God. He is God. It's not just that he was a godly man, of which there have been many. It's not that he's a man who became God, of which there have been absolutely none. He is the one and only God-man. He is rich in person. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is rich in his position. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Because of his accomplished work on the cross of Calvary, because of his death, burial, and his resurrection, he's ascended back into the heavens. He is seated at the place of authority, the right hand of the Father. He is currently interceding on your behalf and on my behalf. He's praying for us just right now. And he's waiting for that moment when the Father's going to look to the Son, give a wink and a nod, and say, Son, go get your bride. Jesus is rich in position. And not only that, but he's rich in possessions. Because he's the creator of heaven and earth, he is the owner of heaven and earth. Every place your foot lands on earthly sod belongs to Jesus. Jesus is the owner of this world. He's the creator of this world. The old country preacher reminds us that Jesus not only owns the cattle on a thousand hills, but he owns those hills as well. Jesus owns all of the world. But not just the world, he owns all of heaven. Think about the richness of heaven. Pavement in heaven is gold. What we value here on this planet as the highest Precious commodity, gold, he uses as asphalt in heaven. You walk streets of gold. You go into the city, the city where Jesus dwells, and the gate is made of a pearl. This is rich. This is vast. I tell you what, if you ever come to a business meeting here at First Baptist Pelham and we start talking about repaving the parking lot in gold, you'll know that money's no object. That's the streets that Jesus walks on. That's the street that you'll walk on when you exit this world and go into heaven by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, he is rich in possessions. He's rich in power. By his word, he created the heavens and the earth. By his word, what was nothing became something, so that Jesus brought somethingness out of nothingness. By his word, he raised the dead. By his power, he brought sight to the blind. By his deeds and power he fed the multitudes Jesus is rich in power and yet Jesus has a riches to rags story you ever thought about it I mean Jesus was born in obscurity and raised in poverty Jesus was born to a teenager out of wedlock He was the stepson 
of a carpenter. And to my knowledge, Jesus never owned a fancy chariot, never owned a house. In fact, one day he said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I take that to mean that there are times when the animal kingdom has it far better than Jesus. Jesus never built a building. Jesus never amassed a military army. Jesus lived some 33 years, which the older I get, the younger that becomes. 33 measly years, that's it. Yet he left an indelible impression upon all of humanity. In fact, by his mere appearance upon earth, it split all of human history from B.C. to A.D. Jesus, while he was on earth, didn't have much money. The little bit he had was stolen by a phony disciple named Judas. When it came time to pay taxes, Jesus didn't have a lot of money, so you know what he did? He said, hey, uh, go fishing, and when you catch a fish, open his mouth, you'll find a coin and give that for the taxes. My friend, come April the 15th, if I find you fishing and you're looking in a, in a largemouth bass for money, I'll know you've hit some dire straits. I mean, Jesus has a riches to rags story. He was born in a borrowed barn. He was placed in a borrowed tomb. I suppose it was borrowed because Jesus knew he was just passing through. He wasn't going to stay in the cradle very long. Praise be to God, he wasn't going to stay in the tomb very long either. So he just borrowed it. It is a riches to rags story. Why does Jesus do that? I'll tell you why he does that. He has a riches to rags story so that you and I can have a rags to riches story. Jesus stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth so that you and I who are earthbound may step into heaven. The Holy One became guilty so that we who are guilty might be declared holy and innocent in the sight of God. He who knew no sin became sin for us so those of us who know nothing but sin may be declared sinless in the very sight of God. I don't know about you, but this makes me happy. When I realize that Jesus stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth, he has a riches to rags story so that you and I may have a rags to riches story for he came to seek and to save the lost and to give you an abundant life that is full of freedom. This is why Jesus came. And when I realize who Jesus is, and when I realize what he's done for me, woe is me if I'm not generous towards him because my generosity generosity is rooted in the cross of Christ. Your generosity is rooted in the cross of our living Lord. So Paul says to the Corinthian believers, you know the gospel. You know the riches to rags story. And you know why? So that you can have a rags to riches story. So, one of the marks of generosity is that it's rooted in the cross of Christ. My friends, we do not have a prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says that as long as I have faith, God will bless me financially. Prosperity gospel is a give in order to get mentality. I give God money, He gives me money. 
we do not have a prosperity gospel. We don't have a poverty gospel either. For there's some who would want us to believe that if you were going to be a good Christian, you've got to give everything away and be completely poor. We don't have a poverty gospel. You know what we have? We have a generosity gospel. We have a gospel that's based on generosity. God gave us the crown jewel of heaven. And as you have been given by the Lord, then you give back unto the Lord. Not that you're trying to pay him off, not that you're trying to pay him back, but you simply give because God has given to you. We don't have a prosperity gospel. We don't have a poverty gospel. We have a generosity gospel. The good news is, though I was dead in my sin, Christ has made me alive both now and forevermore. Fourth, generosity is marked as a willful response to the grace of God. That's why Paul says, um, I urge you to excel in generosity. He says, I'm not commanding you. I'm not telling you what to do. This is my suggestion regarding this matter. Paul understood his limitations. I understand my limitations. I can't demand of you what you do with your money. All I can do is encourage, instruct, advise. But ultimately, it's between you and the Lord. I know my limitations. I know I'm not God. Praise the Lord. And so your generosity is a willful response that you have towards the grace of God. Paul understood that guilt is a terrible motivator. You know, sometimes parents, that works with your children, right? You can guilt them into doing the right thing. But it's not very long-lasting, is it? I mean, if you want long-lasting, positive difference, guilt is not the best way to go. And yet, you've sat under probably uh, a lot of sermons and heard a lot of preachers, and they've tried to scold you into giving. They stand up and they scream at you about how you need to give. Like you, I've sat under heavy-handed, guilt-laden calls for generosity. Can we just be honest? That doesn't work. You're like Mark Twain. Mark Twain wrote that one day he went to church and the preacher was talking about money, generosity, and it was so heavy-handed and guilt-laden that Mark Twain wrote, not only did I not give what I had intended to give, but I took some dollar bills out of the plate when it was passed in front of me. I understand that. I find it interesting that in this passage, Paul just talks about the grace of giving. He doesn't give a formula. I find that interesting. He doesn't say uh, the formula for grace giving is 10%. The Old Testament called that a tithe. Even in the Old Testament, when there was a tithe that was given, that wasn't the totality of their generosity. In fact, they gave numerous offerings. Many have estimated that uh, most of the religious people of the Old Testament, they probably gave nearly 20 to 25% of their annual income. 
when it came for their tithe and their uh, gifts to the priest and the feast and the widows and everything else, it probably was equivalent to 20, 25%. I find it interesting that Paul doesn't even mention that either. He doesn't say that grace giving is 25%. He doesn't put any percentage mark on it. He just says, listen, you give as the Lord has given unto you. If the desire is there, the gift is acceptable. I mean, you've got to wrestle with the Lord on this. You've got to take the words of C.S. Lewis to heart when it comes to how much I ought to give to the Lord. I know I can't give only what I can spare. So you've got to wrestle with this. It's a heart issue between you and the Lord because I know that generosity is your willful response, not coerced, your willful response to the grace of God. He wraps up with, an illustration. It's an illustration that's taken from the Old Testament. You remember when the manna fell down uh, and the Israelites would go out every day and they would take as much as they were needed, or at least that's what they were supposed to do. And some of those religious hoarders, they would go in and grab up more manna than they really needed for the day. Why? Because they thought to themselves, well, it may not be here tomorrow, so I better get it for myself. And other people said, you've taken so much, there's not enough for me. And so they wouldn't have enough. And you know what God did? To those who took too much, God sent holy maggots to eat it. And remarkably, those families that thought they had too little, God in his infinite sovereign care was able to stretch it so they had just enough. Paul says, listen, if that's what they did in taking, that's also what can be done in giving. Listen, you can't outgive God. You can't give him too much. You can't give him too little. You just give as it's been given unto you. You give unto the Lord because God's been gracious to you. So generosity, according to 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 15, is not dependent on personal circumstances. And generosity is marked by joy. Generosity for us is always inextricably tied to the cross of Christ. Generosity is a willful response to the grace of God. Generosity is a characteristic of God. And it ought to be a characteristic of God's people. Keep in mind what I said at the very beginning. I am not trying to get generosity from you. I want generosity for you. I'm not trying to get anything out of you. I'm trying by the grace of God to put something in you. May you be generous because God has been generous unto you. So you say, Pastor, what do I do with this? Well, this morning if you're here and you've never accepted the crown jewel of heaven, Jesus the Christ, today can be the day of your salvation, where you can come and take me by the hand and say, Pastor, I need to trust this Jesus who is rich in person and position, possessions and power. I need this Jesus in my life because I'm dead in my sin and I have no purpose for living. I need Jesus. Today, you can turn and trust, turn from your wicked ways and trust him as Savior. Maybe you are here today and, and you, you are a believer. Uh, you, you follow hard after God. 
this thing of generosity, you're thinking to yourself, I can't wait till the calendar turns to November because then this four-week series is going to be over. My friends, if you're thinking along those lines, you just might have an issue with generosity. So this morning, as God is shaping us, refining us, discipling us, may we be generous as he has been generous unto us. Heavenly Father, we give you this invitation. As you mold us into the people that you want us to be, help us to look more and more like your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Have your way in this invitation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.